If you grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you would probably know who this is. Tyson said no one in this crowd would know who this is. Come on, who was that? Abba, all right, good deal. You know who that was. I grew up listening to Abba, and uh, it's a, it was a group that was formed in Stockholm in 1972, made up of four Swedish people. Their names are, and my Swedish is not very good, so Agnetha Foxkog, Bjorn Juveus, Benny Anderson, and Annie Friedlingstad. Pretty good. Yeah, that group's name is an acronym. They take the first names of uh, the first letter of all their names, and they come up with the name Abba. It's also a um, uh, a palindrome because no matter how you spell it, front or back, it's spelled the same way. Abba spelled backwards is still Abba. So uh, uh, their songs topped the worldwide charts from 1974 back to 1983, also in 2021. You probably recognize the group as singing some of the songs. It was in the uh, pop musical called Mamma Mia back in 2008. How many of you saw that? I did not, thank goodness, I didn't watch that show. If you recognize the song that they sang, and don't you love the hairdos? I love the hair. I had hair like that once, a long time ago. They sang the song Money, 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 recorded in 1972, uh, or excuse me, 1976. And if you didn't get the lyrics, here they are. Money, money, money must be funny be in the rich man's world. Money, 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 always sunny in the rich man's world. All the things that I could do if I had a little money... It's a rich man's world. Man, we think about that. Think of all the things that you could do if you had just a little bit more money than you got now. The places you could go, the things you could see, the things you could buy. If I had just a little bit more money, man, life would be so easy. It would really make a difference. The truth is, living here in America today, we probably have a greater chance than people of the entire world of being able to have money, to be able to get into a position to have that. Here in America... Uh, in 2018, American households held over $98 trillion of the world's wealth. $113 trillion in assets was held by the American people. Forbes magazine said that the number of billionaires in the U.S., U.S. billionaires, rose from 614, uh, or 614 in 2020 all the way up to 724 in 2021. Devin Kirchie is a part of that list. He's got a cul-de-sac named after him, I understand. So uh, uh, Devin's even here or not. I, I don't have any desire to be a billionaire, but you know, a couple million wouldn't be bad. I, I, I could use a couple million. That, that would be okay. I mean, there, there really is enough to go around, right? Think of the billions of dollars that some people in America have. Jeff Bezos is worth $177 billion. Elon Musk with Tesla has $151 billion. Bill Gates is worth $124 billion, followed by Mark Zuckerberg, who's worth $97 billion. Warren Buffett used to be the richest man in America, but he's now worth a paltry $96 billion. Alice Walton of Walmart fame comes in at $62 billion, followed by Mackenzie Scott with $53 billion. And at the last of the line is Julia Koch with $46 billion. Just a, a little bit, a little money. They don't need all that. Come on, that's what you're thinking. They don't need all that money. Send some our way. We could, we could use some of that. I mean, I could, I could find a way to spend some of that money. If I only had their money, man, life would be just so much easier. There would be, again, so many things that I could take care of if I had just a little bit more and maybe even some of their money. I mean, look how well off they've got it. They're wearing Saks Fifth Avenue. I'm wearing Walmart. They're driving Fiaris, and I'm driving a Ford. They're eating uh, steak and lobster. I'm eating at Steak and Shake, if you can find one that's still open anymore. A bumper sticker on a Lexus that went by said, prosperity is your divine right. Prosperity, your divine right. 
Is that your divine right, really? I mean, are you, are you uh, rightfully able to have that? I mean, a right is really just a, a, a claim to a just cause or a, a lawful claim. But do I, have any rights, do I have any rights before God? I mean, if I'm right before God, if I'm living as I should, then God should bless my righteousness by giving me all the things that I want, by meeting my, my material wants and desires, right? I mean, it happened in the Old Testament when the Israelites were obeying God and when they were, they were following him well, then God blessed them with prosperity, with lands and material things. But also, when they disobeyed God, the judgment of God came in the way of the withholding of blessings, the withholding of materials, the withholding of prosperity. He, he did it this way. Even Jesus puts a low priority on material things. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Still, what would be wrong, what would be so bad with just a little bit more? Just a little wealth. I love the song that Tevye sings on uh, Fiddler on the Roof, If I Were a Rich Man. Uh, the, the last verse of this goes, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy? My wife said, don't do that. (laughs) I I couldn't help it. I love that song, if I were a wealthy man. The author of Psalm 73 asked the very same question. He's asking the same thing. We don't know Asaph exactly. We don't know who that is. we know that he's the son of Berechiah that's mentioned in the Old Testament, an ancestor of the Asaphites, a, a guild of musicians there in the first temple. It's also possible that, that he was one of the Levites commissioned by David to lead the singing in the temple. It could have been that he was simply a scribe of David, and he would write down the things that David wanted him to say. While it's not really important who he is, what he writes resonates with many of us. We're going to be reading through the entire 73rd Psalm, so if you've got your Bibles open that, you'll see it up on the screen. I use the, uh, the New Living Translation, so it may be a little bit different than what you see in the, in the ESV Bibles in the pew. But we, beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 73, Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. Why? For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. I take some comfort that Asaph recognized the problem. He said he envied, he coveted, he wanted, he he broke the 10th commandment. He wanted something that wasn't his. He wanted a little bit more in life. You see, the biggest problem with prosperity is that we oftentimes begin to compare our wealth, our worth, our assets to those of somebody else. And we end up wondering if God loves me as much as he loves somebody else because somebody else is prospering and I'm not. What's going on, God? So we demand an explanation. Why do the rich get richer? And why do others of us who believe and love God fall further behind? Why does that happen that way? I want you to follow with me closely as the author defines the problem. He discovers the solution. And then he finds joy in the answers to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we're dealing with the fact that we need resources in this world to live, food, clothing, Father, transportation, all these things that that we believe we have to have, and you give them to us generously, but uh, dear God, help us to learn the secret of real contentment in these things. Father, when we look around the world and we see that, that oftentimes the unrighteous are being blessed in fantastic ways, I think it's good that we remember sometimes where those blessings are coming from. They're not coming from you. 
I, be, I believe, dear God, that our adversary, Satan, can also bless others so that they take, their, they take their eyes off of you. Father, help us to have a clear understanding of your grace and love for us. Bless us as we learn today from Asaph, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we begin to look at what others got, we fall into the danger of comparing ourselves with somebody else, the danger of comparisons. Now, as we pick up in, in verse 4 of chapter 73, Asaph writes, They, meaning the wicked, the wealthy, seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Life is so easy for them, he's saying. Wealth evidently is able to solve any kind of a problem. He writes, they wear pride like a jeweled necklace, which is a, a token of dignity. It reflects self-assurance and self-importance and pride. They clothe themselves with cruelty, he said. The NLT says, these fat cats, I love this, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Callous hearts is what he's saying here. Their eyes sparkle because they have everything that they want, everything that they think they need. He writes, they scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. You see, along with wealth comes power, and power creates a sense of arrogance. And it's been said that power corrupts, and ab absolute, er, power corrupts, absolute, power corrupts absolutely. And so he says, the, the people are dismayed and they're confused, drinking in all of their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? I mean, what can God possibly add to my situation? I've got everything that I need. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I've got it all. Look at these wicked people, he writes, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. A little earlier in Psalms, David wrote in Psalm 36, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. You see, the psalmist lived in a time when the Israelites believed that God's blessings came to them in the form of material things, possessions, land, property, prosperity, blessings. And yet listen to his reasoning when he says, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason at all? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. You see, he's saying, suddenly, my life is falling apart, and I'm asking the question, God, where are you now when I need you the most? Where are you now when, when things are, are, are happening in my life that I can't handle? The expenses are high. The needs are great. The pressure is overwhelming. I can't deal with this. Where are you, God? I've kept the rules. I follow God. I, I, I've, I kept the law. Why do the wicked who make no pretense in following you why do they end up at the end of the day with everything, and I'm left with nothing? And you're sitting there this morning thinking, yeah, that's exactly right. Asaph's got that right. Man, I, I watch the news, and I listen uh, to the radio, and I look at YouTube, and I see all these people out there that don't know God. They don't believe in God. And, and man, it's just being poured into their laps day after day, week after week. They're advancing, and I'm not. What's the deal? I tried to do it right, but someone who breaks all the rules and cheats and connives and schemes gets better results, a better bottom line. 1982, our youngest was born, and the doctor, after a few months, began to use the words cerebral palsy and microcephala. And I asked God, why? 
I, I, I mean, I went to Bible college. I decided years ago that I wanted to go into the ministry. I wanted to serve you. I wanted to preach your word. I wanted to serve your people. I wanted to do the right things. So God, why into my life have you given me this challenge? It's not fair. You probably all said that. I trusted you. Why didn't you pull it off for me? Woman was Christian woman was talking with her minister, complaining about the fact that her marriage was not strong. And she said, I look at my neighbor. I don't covet my neighbor's husband. I covet the relationship that she has. And they're not even believers. They're not even Christians. She was envious of what she didn't have with her husband, even though they were Christians. You see, when we see non-believers, those who don't recognize the power of God or see the blessings of God, it's hard not to be envious. The struggle that Asaph was having was he felt that he needed what the world had and that God simply wasn't enough. Someone wrote, envy is a hungry beggar who never has enough. Okay, I, I understand that when we look at the world around us and we see that the wicked seem to prosper and do so well, but have we, ever, have we ever looked at other believers who do well and that we've been envious, we have been coveting, we've had a heart of coveting, we, we, we see what they've got and, and we want some of that. In the book of James chapter 1, James writes, believers who are poor have something to boast about for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. You see, the extremes of poverty and wealth both have their own challenges. If you're poor and you think if you'd had just a little bit more money, then everything would be okay. But the Bible and experience both proves that riches produce more stress than it does, uh, than poverty does. Ecclesiastes 5 says, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. So if you're having trouble sleeping, you have too much money. Now, the Bible is simply saying, do not let financial problems and stresses and woes change or, or help you to lose your value system. If you're rich and you flaunt it, that's wrong. But if you're not rich, if you're poor, if you struggle and you're threatened by that, that's also wrong. If you've got health, if you've got your family, if you've got a saved relationship with Jesus Christ, you're pretty, you're pretty well off. You're doing okay. There are millions of people out there that would love to have what you've got if those things are yours. If you're rich, we're told to take pride in the low position. Don't think you're superior because you drive an expensive car and you live in a million-dollar house. You can lose those things in just a moment. Take pride in the low position. Even King David, he was a man of wealth, and he said, Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. You see, when we compare ourselves with other people, we become slaves to social and financial prejudices. A businessman got into, a, got into a bus. He sat down beside a young man. They began to trip down the road. The young man leaned over and said, Sir, do you have the time? And the man didn't answer. The young man leaned over to the businessman again and said, Sir, do you have the time? He still didn't answer. So a third time he said, Sir, is it too much trouble to ask what time it is? And the businessman turned to the young man and said, I'm not going to tell you what time it is, and here's why. 
If I tell you what time it is, you'll ask where I live and I'll tell you about my neighborhood. You'll ask about my hobbies and, and, and my interests and those kinds of things and I'll ask about yours and you'll talk about your hobbies and you'll ask about my family and I'll, I'll show you pictures. I'll invite you to my house for dinner and you can be introduced to my wife there. You'll see my daughter and she's beautiful and you'll fall in love with her and you want to marry her and I'm not about to let anybody marry my daughter who can't afford a watch. <laughs> now we can understand his... Uh, his paranoia, uh, maybe a little bit, but we also understand his value system. Often we judge a person by their financial status, especially in this day of, of endless litigation when it seems like those who can afford it can go to the right people and write off their problems. They can just write a check and their problems simply disappear. We see that happening all the time around us. Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. I have talked to just a handful of ministers that I know have access to the financial books. Now, they, they have that only for a very special reason. That is so that they can uh, uh, write and say thank you to people who have newly begun to give or to those who have given generously and to thank them for that. But I personally am glad that I never know what anybody gives. I want to make sure that everybody's treated and no one's treated special because of what they're able to do and what they can give. Jesus said that the widow who gave two copper coins gave more than the rich because she gave all that she had. But there is a temptation that we end up treating better those who are better off because we know they have the ability to give more and to bless more. And so sometimes you begin to look at them with a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, more support. How do we do in that area. How, how do we act when it comes to this? Are invitations to your house for supper based on social economic status? I mean, do you keep at arm's length those who are shabbily dressed and, and not up to your standard of living? Do you decide what wedding or what anniversary party to go to by what, the other, by, by what these people make and, and, and how they live. What determines what funerals that you will go to? Uh, Wayne Smith used to say, where there is a will, there's a relative. I, how do you feel about other people that have got more things than you do? There, there is such a thing as reverse discrimination. Are you jealous of somebody else's wealth and affluence? Uh, does it bother you to see an expensive car in the parking lot? Say, Man, do you see what so-and-so arrived in the other day? Holy cow, what, how can he afford to do that? You see, the church is a place where, where financial distinctions and social differences and any other kind of difference has to be wiped out. They, they, they can't exist here. They can't be allowed to form our opinions of someone else by what somebody else drives or how they dress or what they look like. We can't allow for that to happen. A church in Washington, D.C. had a very unusual invitation at the end of the service when the invitation was given. A U.S. senator came forward, a man that worked in a local restaurant as a busboy came forward, and a college, foreign college student came forward. The preacher stood up and said, I want you to see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, there are no distinctions. It makes no difference about your past. It makes no difference about your present. It makes no difference about your bank account, about your stock holdings. It makes no difference about the fact that you struggle to get by every day. At the foot of the cross, we are all the same, coming before Jesus on an equal pavement because we all are sinners and are in need of grace, and Jesus gives that freely at the cross. And so the cross makes no distinctions about that. Envy hits all of us at one time or another, and we forget how wondrously God has blessed us. So how do we, how do we go about remembering that? There is truth that comes about 
when we have a clear vision, when things become clear to us. And it became clear to Asaph in verse 16. It said, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task that is. God, I can't figure this out. I'm working hard. I'm doing the right things. I'm trying to live for you, but I'm just not making it. And it's tough. And I see people out here that don't believe in you, that do not bend a knee to you, that do not even regard you, and yet you're filling their life with every good thing. But listen what it says here. It says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path, and you send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was hard. It was bitter. Because of of how I compared myself to others. I I was torn up inside. The language literally means his stomach was in knots. I was foolish. I was ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Do you hear what, what Asaph is saying? He says, now it all makes sense. It makes sense. He saw his purpose in life. What was his purpose in life? What is our purpose in life? It is not to accumulate things. It's not to be wealthy. It's not to become a person of a status or prestige. It is to honor, love, and worship God. That's our purpose, to follow and serve God. That is our purpose, to love his son, Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That's why we're here. That's what we're supposed to do. And he realized the blessings of God came in that relationship with him that he had. The pursuit of the wealth is a slippery path, he said. He slides right over the cliff. Psalm 49 says, Don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich and their homes become even more splendid. For when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them to the grave. Now, understand this. God is not against prosperity. He wants to bless I know know wealthy believers, and God has blessed them that way because they, in turn, with their wealth, honor God and bless others. They are generous with that, and I believe that those who live that way get more because they are generous. That's, that's That's not the secret to it. It's just that God has chosen to do that with those particular people. But we can't demand it. We can't say that God isn't blessing us if we don't get what we want. But Asaph also understood something else, that he had no right, and neither do we, to judge others. He needed to be assured of God's love for him, just like we need to be assured of God's love for us, even when things aren't going well. Here's where I don't want you to miss what I believe is a salient point. When did the moment of clarity come to Asaph? When did he begin to really understand? It said he, it happened the moment he began to worship God. He went into your sanctuary. He understood the destiny of the wicked. In other words, when he sought out God, life made sense. When you seek out God, life begins to make sense. He says in Psalm 18, But in my distress I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard heard me cry from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. I believe this is an important point the psalmist makes here. Worship is critical to making sense of life. Why is that true, and how is that true? I, I, I think there are three ways that we can see that happening. To begin with, when we worship, there's a lack of distraction. Now, I, I know that when we come together, sometimes we can have a heavy rainstorm, and, and we hear that's a, that's a little distracting. Someone's phone may go off. There may be uh, something else happening, and, and we tend to get a, you know, a little distracted. But for the most part, we are apart. We are away from the noise of the world when we're here together to worship. 
I remember when I first got my hearing aids, my wife was thrilled. <laughs> so was the rest of the staff at church. I could finally hear what was going on. It was great. I mean, things that were bright, uh, things that sounded so well, the highs, the lows, it was great. But I also recognized there were some annoyances with the hearing aids because certain sounds were really irritating. The, the jingling of keys, man, that was kind of hard. Uh, when, when Deb is making a, a, a protein shake there in the house and the thing is running, wow, it's, it's really, really loud. And so there are some things that are distracting even now, but man, when we come together as a body of Christ, we're away from the noise of the world, the cacophony of the distraction of our culture. And that's all set aside, put outside, and we can come together and we can focus on worshiping the Father, hearing His voice, listening to the Spirit, being taught how we are to live that blesses Him and blesses us as well. The psalmist says, I love your sanctuary, Lord, the place where your glorious presence dwells. God is here. He is here now among us. The Holy Spirit is here with us. Jesus Christ is abiding inside of us. We are together as the body of Christ to worship God. The second thing that happens is when we worship together, it alters our perception of life. I mean, things just look different when we're praising God, doesn't it? When you're praising God, I think your whole attitude changes. You ever, you ever waken up in the middle of the night? Tyson and I have had these conversations about waking up at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, and all of a sudden your brain just does a, a, a huge download. <sighs> you just start thinking of things to do, places to go, people to see, things to write, things to prepare for, all the stuff that has to be done, and it needed to be done yesterday, and all of a sudden that night darkness just seems to close in. And you find yourself distressed and depressed and anxious. But for some reason, when the light comes on, when the sun comes up, it seems to erase a lot of it. Things aren't quite as, as urgent. They're not as overwhelming in the light. When, when Mary and Martha went to the tomb in the early morning hours, it was still kind of dark, and they couldn't see very well, and they were distressed, and they were depressed. Jesus had been crucified. But all of a sudden, that stone's rolled away, and in the light of day, they see Jesus, and everything begins to make sense to them. It changed their perception. One more thing about worship. It is a unique assembly. There's nothing else in the world like it, folks. No, uh, uh, it's not like a sporting event or a club meeting. It's not like a classroom. It's not like a concert hall. It's not like a business meeting or a conference room. What happens here is so much different than, than what happens in any of these other places. It's a place where you and I as believers come together to participate in expressing your love for God, to be encouraged by His grace, to be taught how to live well. It is a place where believers grow deep, and as Acts 2 says, where we continue to be taught and fellowship and break bread and spend time in prayer. I've heard people say, you probably heard this as well, you know, I can worship out on the golf course. I don't have to be in church. I can worship out fishing, doing those kind of things. Yeah, I agree that you can acknowledge God's creation and the beauty of that. And there have been those quiet places I've gone to where truly I can, I can sit and meditate. But I sincerely doubt that on the golf course there's a lot of worshiping going on. There's a lot of other things going on, but worshiping is probably not one of those. What we do together here is a unique situation. Again, unlike anything else. You don't come to church. You are the church. The church gathers together to worship God. And that's what we're called to do. And that is a unique situation. 
The psalmist said, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Psalm 132 says, let's go to the sanctuary of the Lord. Let us worship at the footstool of his throne. If you're not regularly involved in worship, I think there are aspects of the life of a disciple that are not being lived out. I know that we live in a, a, a fearful culture today. I understand those things. I know the reality of diseases. But the truth is that the body of Christ is still called to come together to worship. And if we're not doing that at all, we're missing out on what it means to be a disciple. That brings us to the one thing that the wicked cannot do. And they lack either the power or the, the uh, reason to bless God. Asaph began to realize that he was, he was able to trust his life to God. He, he saw that. And when that happened for him, it brought him to a point where he had this joy of contentment. Look what the Bible says about this. Yet I still belong to you. You hold me in your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things that you do. Whom have I in heaven but you? David said in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else. I've got all I need. And when we take stock of this world and what this world has to offer compared with the incomparable riches of his grace, what more could we possibly need than the grace of God? I want you to think just a moment about the last time you saw that truth lived out in someone. I desire I desire you more than anything else, God. Have you ever seen that lived out in a person's life? A couple weeks ago, I received a phone call from a good friend of mine. She and her husband and kids lived down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They were members of the church in Anna. She said, Dee, could, could you take a day and, and go see mom and dad? Don and Rhonda Rush was her mom and dad, and they live up in Peoria, but they were also members of the church in Anna. Don was an elder. One of those kind of guys that would do anything for you. The first time that I met Don, I went and said, hey, Don, I, I, I need your help with something. Can I ask you a favor? He said, never be, uh, never be afraid. No, never. Shoot, I can't remember how it says it now. Uh, give me, always give me the chance to say no. That's what it was. Give me the chance to say no. And I, I couldn't figure out what he meant by that. What he meant was, always ask. I may not always be able to help, but, but never don't ask. And every time I asked, he always said yes. He helped us build a new church building. He, he gave sacrificially. His wife, Rhonda, she was a Sunday school teacher. She helped with the youth group. She led a prayer ministry. She wrote curriculum for our Sunday school. She decorated classrooms. She helped with VBS. She loves Jesus intensely. Ten years ago, Rhonda was diagnosed with cancer in her brain behind her left eye. The doctor said, you have six months to live. God intervened. And along with medical treatment and science and technology, the power of God cured her of her cancer. Five years after that, she was proclaimed clean of cancer. At year seven, it came back. Someplace in her arm, someplace in her neck. Three times it came, and they were able to deal with it and take it away. On that fourth occasion, it came back with a vengeance back in her brain. The doctor said, we can't, 
we can't treat you fast enough. The cancer's always one step ahead. And so the doctors agree when Rhonda said, let's suspend all treatments, and I'm just going to wait for God to take me home. This past Monday, I went up to Peoria Heights to visit Don and Rhonda. And as I said in their house, we laughed and we reminisced about the ministry in Anna. And we cried. And we spoke quietly of faith and hope and heaven. And we prayed. The psalmist says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Rhonda Rush epitomized verse 25. I desire you more than anything on earth. That's who Rhonda Rush is. She desires God more than anything else on earth. You see, prosperity is not a divine right, but a relationship with God is. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his compassion, his love, his favor, those are divine rights. So ask yourself this morning, what is it that you want most? What do you want most in life? You want power? You want wealth? You want prestige? You want affluence? You want influence? What, what do you want? Or do you want fellowship with God? God the creator. God the sustainer. God the provider. God the healer. God the father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit who abides in us. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Man, what does your heart desire this morning? What does your heart want? Oh, yeah, you could be satisfied for a while with an increased bank account, with a little extra money in the savings, with, with some higher stock revenues. Those things will satisfy for a time. But the desire of your heart is for something much, much greater. That's to know God, to be in a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, to be strengthened daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that not, if that's not yours today, it is a divine right that you may have. All it requires is for you to come and surrender yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and let Him take control of your life. If you have not been immersed the waters are prepared this morning. If you have a prayer need, Tyson and I are here to pray with you. If you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ, please come. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that you've given us in your word this morning. It's not mine, it's yours. And Father, we do struggle at times because we look around and we see that, that there's a lot of inequality in life. And even in our wealth, we feel at times that we're not blessed as we should be. But Father, what you've given to us, how we've been blessed, the wonders of grace, the, the power of forgiveness, Father, the, the joy of the presence of your son Jesus, help us to understand that and let that be what we desire most in anything else. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.